Greetings and welcome. My name's James White. We're studying the sufficiency of Scripture, the Holy Scripture that Christians believe, the Word of God. And we have come to the point of asking the question, what was the Lord Jesus' view of Scripture? Many world religions respect Jesus Christ. They recognize that He had special insights. Christians believe that He was the Son of God, that He came specifically to save His people from their sins, that He died upon the cross and rose again the third day. And since He was the Son of God, that He had pre-existed, as John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, that He had eternally existed and, in fact, is involved in the creation itself, then how He viewed the Bible should be very important to us as well. He would not be one who had errant ideas. He would not be one who was simply ignorant of the history of the Bible or, or its inspiration. How did the Lord Jesus view the Bible? Well, time would not even allow us to do a full study of something as major as Jesus' view of Scripture. Over and over again, you find in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find in them this, this constant refrain on the Lord Jesus' part, as it has been written. He uses that term, it has been written. And when he is in conflict with others about what God's truth is, that is the final word that he needs to say, as it has been written, as it is found in Scripture. And that is the end of the argument as far as Jesus is concerned. He said to the Jews, the Scriptures cannot be broken. They cannot be undone. They cannot be destroyed. It is a given to him that God has spoken, and he has spoken with clarity in what would be at that time the Old Testament Scriptures. But what about this idea we've been studying where Paul says all Scripture is theanustos, it is God-breathed. Or Peter says that men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus have that same kind of view? Well, I believe that he did. Let's look at a specific text in Matthew chapter 22. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 22. Here's a situation where uh, in the days of Jesus, you had two primary major Jewish groups there in Jerusalem. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. And one of the major differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was over the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Some people struggle to remember this, and so you just need to remember that the Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were fair, you see. And that only works in certain languages, I'm afraid, but you'll never forget the difference between the two groups. The Sadducees denied that the dead rose. And so, obviously, in the conflicts and in the arguments that they had had with the Pharisees over the years, they had developed a, a particular set of arguments, and they decided it was time to take Jesus on because Jesus clearly did believe with the Pharisees in the resurrection of the dead. And so they come up to him and they present their favorite argument, and they told a story about a woman who was married seven times to a series of seven brothers. The reason for this being there was a law in Israel, and if uh, a person died, if the first brother died, then the next brother in line would take her as his wife to raise up children to his deceased brother. So, in this story anyways, obviously it was a hypothetical story, Jesus uh, is faced with this idea that this woman married seven different brothers. I've often said that if I was brother number seven, I think I would have headed for the hills before I could have ever married this woman, but that's not how it worked. 
and all of them died. And then she finally died. And the question that is asked of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and I can just sort of see the Sadducees stepping back and folding their arms. How are you going to answer this one? Because evidently the Pharisees had never come up with a really good answer to this one. They asked, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Because she had been married to these seven brothers. Jesus' response is very instructive. He does not like uh, do what many people in, in Western societies do today and say, well, I have a different understanding, or maybe there's another way to look at this. He's rather blunt. He starts off by saying, you are mistaken, or we could put it, you're wrong. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, his answer is very straightforward. First of all, he says, you don't understand the nature of the resurrection because you think people are going to be married the same way that they're married here, and that is not the case. Instead, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But then he turns to their real problem because he recognizes that what they're arguing against is the resurrection of the dead. And he says, but in regards to the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. His point is God said, I am not I was. And so he bases on the very tense of a verb, his argument in saying he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so his point is that since God is the God of Abraham, then Abraham is still alive in the presence of God, as is Isaac, as is Jacob. They, Jacob, they have not just simply disappeared. They are not asleep someplace, unconscious of what's going on. God is still their God, and he bases that upon the tense of a verb. Now, we might in passing recognize that that would require Jesus to believe that inspiration extends even to the very forms of words, and it would require us to believe that from Jesus' perspective, he had to believe that what had been written by Moses so long ago had been preserved for well over a thousand years to his day. So we have Jesus' view of inspiration. We have Jesus' view of the preservation of Scripture over time as well. But that's not the real reason I went to Matthew chapter 22. Because we have a tendency to read through this argument, and, and since we see what the argument is, we read past a very, very, very important aspect of this particular text. Take a look again at what Jesus says here. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, now look at this phrase, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Normally, when I say to someone, have you not read, what would follow afterwards would be what I wrote to you. Read, write. Or I might say, did you not hear what I spoke to you, what I said to you? But notice that's not what Jesus says. Notice what he says. Have you not read what was 
spoken to you by God. What does this tell us? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? For the Lord Jesus, he held those Sadducees standing in front of him accountable to the word of God that had been written about 1,400 years earlier. And he held them accountable as if God had spoken those words directly to them. To read the scriptures for Jesus was to have God speaking to you, even though the words that he quotes had been written down 1,400 years earlier. Now think about what that means. We have been looking at the consistency of the Bible's testimony to itself as the written word of God, as God speaking to us in written form. And we saw that the Apostle Paul said that Scripture is God-breathed. We saw that Peter says that men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And now the Lord Jesus holds men accountable to the Word of God, to the written Word of God, as if God had spoken these words directly to individuals who lived many generations later. And what that means is the Word of God is not some dead letter. It's not just a bunch of of flecks of, of ink upon a, a written page. There's so much more to this. When you read what the Word of God is saying, it is indeed God's very speech. And so we see the Bible's testimony to itself is very consistent. But I want to bring together another concept for you at this point. The Scriptures, the written Word of God, and the Spirit of God work together in perfect harmony. We do not believe that Scripture is sufficient as if it exists in isolation. There are many brilliant scholars in the world who can read all the original languages and they can understand all the history, and yet they don't believe. They do not obey. They have no love for God or passion for His truth. And yet others do. What's the difference? I would submit to you it's the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. Aside from the work of the Spirit of God in the heart, these will just be words upon a page. You will not understand what makes someone like myself so passionate about the Word of God. It will seem odd and strange to you. Outside of the work of the Spirit of God within your heart. And that reality is confessed by Many different Christian denominations in our confessions of faith, we say that the work of the Spirit of God is necessary. In fact, I want to read just such a, a section here so you can understand that we're not teaching that the Bible exists in isolation, but that there is a work of the Spirit of God that is required. And then along with that, I want to say a little bit more concerning the nature of Scripture and man's role in that process of revelation. First, I wish to read two sections from a statement of faith that was written around the time of the Reformation that I think very clearly uh, follows the biblical teaching concerning the nature of Scripture. We read it as follows. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life 
is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Now, let me just comment on what was said in this particular portion. What it's saying is the Scriptures contain everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that God would have us to know is given to us in that which is God-breathed. But apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, apart from that work of the Spirit of God in our hearts, there will not be obedience. There will not be a desire to hear and to obey and to apply these truths which we find in Scripture. Likewise, it is said that there is nothing to be added to the Scriptures. We're not to be looking for future Scriptures or new prophets or anything along these lines. And it recognizes that there are certain situations where the simple heart of wisdom, the heart that has been, has been influenced by the Spirit of God, has grown in its love and knowledge of God, is what we need to come up with certain answers in regards to, for example, the, uh, the ordering of the church in some situations or things like that. That We don't need to have a specific text uh, to answer some of the smaller questions if we have been growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is that heart of wisdom that would give us that direction. And then the next section says this, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Make sure you hear that. Nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may obtain unto a sufficient understanding of them. What's this saying? All passages of Scripture are not as easily understood as others. There are some difficult texts of Scripture. There are some texts of Scripture that are, that are so rooted in the historical context that sometimes we don't know what that historical context was with fullness, and so it can be somewhat difficult. There are other texts of Scripture that are very, very, very plain. And the point is that we are not saying that all you have to do is pick up the Bible, just flip it open to whatever, read a couple paragraphs, and ah, that's everything I need to know. If that were the case, the Bible could be two pages long. We wouldn't need to have something quite so large. Instead, there is a process. As Christians know, the Bible commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's growth. That takes time. And I realize in the modern world, the idea of growth over time isn't overly popular because that requires patience. I have often commented to my children that uh, when I grew up, at least in the first number of years, we didn't have something called a microwave oven. And they don't understand that. You mean you had to make popcorn over time? And I, I talked to them about how, how, to, how to make certain foods and how you'd have to put them inside an oven and you'd have to boil things. And now all they do is just throw it in the microwave and 
It's all done. It's instant. It takes 30 seconds. And they don't know how we survive without that. And sadly, that kind of perspective frequently comes into the Christian life as well, where we expect an instant fix. We want Christian maturity to come overnight. We want it to be, uh, just take a pill, press a button, use one of our gadgets, and all of a sudden all of our questions are answered and we have instant maturity. That's not how God operates. It takes time. And though I have spent all of my adult life and I was raised in a Christian family and so I had, I had access to the Word of God from the time that I could read anything, the first book I remember is my Bible. Even though I've had all that exposure and learned the original languages, there is still so much more to know, so much depth to be plumbed and to be examined. And so it is a growing process. And we need to use what's called due use, the use of the, of the due means. What does that mean? That means God's given us a church. You said, well, wait a minute. You said that, that the authority of Scripture isn't dependent upon a church. That's correct. The authority of the church is not dependent upon a church. But that does not mean that God has not given us the church. God has given us the church. It has a purpose. In His wisdom, God places us together with other believers. We are to have elders who teach and preach. We are to learn from one another. I do not believe in this idea of me and my Bible out under a tree alone as if that is all God has for me. God has given us the church. He's given us the ordinances of the church. And these should be things that are used by the Spirit of God to cause us to grow and to mature in our faith. And they also help to keep us balanced in our interpretation of the Word of God so we don't go chasing after things. One of the greatest abuses of the Bible is when people go to the Bible and they want to make a decision. And so what they do is they just sort of do the, the hunt and peck method, I'm going to go there. And you just look down and whatever your finger landed on is somehow supposed to be magically what you need to know. That's a wonderful way to read your desires into a text that may have had nothing to do with that in the first place. Instead, we need to be balanced in our approach to Scripture, balanced in our reading of Scripture, and we want to hear God speaking in Scripture. I don't want to hear myself speaking in Scripture. I don't want to hear my thoughts and my desires being reflected back to me. I don't want to hold a mirror in front of myself as if I'm actually looking at the Word of God. I want the Word of God to show me the truth about myself, even when that truth is somewhat uncomfortable. And so this statement, I think, is very important for us to understand that not all Scripture alike is equally plain and easy to understand. Sometimes we have to do some studying. Sometimes we have to do some examination. And we need the work of the Spirit of God to assist us and to aid us in that examination. Now, another point I'd like to make is this. When we talk about the Scriptures being the divine Word of God, we are not saying, when we talk about the process of inspiration, that God basically took over the individuals who were used to write Scripture. We're not saying that somehow people just became automatic typewriters, went into a trance and just started writing things, and, and therefore what we have in Scripture is uh, just a, a reproduction of something that's stored away in heaven someplace. We have recognized that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes people object to the fact that we can see in the Bible that men have studied and they have collected sources 
They've done research. This comes out in Luke chapter 1, the gospel according to Luke. Luke was a tremendous historian. In fact, recent studies have demonstrated that when we can verify these things, when Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and then the Acts of the Apostles, as he would record Paul's travels in the ancient world, Christian scholars for many, for many centuries had noted that he would use some somewhat unusual words when he would talk about the people uh, who were in charge in certain areas, on a, this island, that island, this nation, that nation. He'd use different words when they were, had a certain type of political authority and things like that. And people had wondered about that. Recent studies have shown that when you follow Luke around and when archaeology allows us to do this, Luke was using the exact words that the local people would always use of the people who had authority. For example, in the United States, we have a sheriff uh, or we have a policeman. Uh, but in the UK, you might have a constable, for example. Luke uses the exact language that was used by the people in that area. He was a very careful historian. And notice what he says in Luke chapter 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Here the Apostle, the, the, the apostle Luke, what does he say? I did my homework. I interviewed eyewitnesses because Luke wasn't there initially. And in fact, there are some stories, some elements of Paul's ministry. He wasn't there. We can tell when he joins him in the book of Acts. He says, so I did research and I interviewed eyewitnesses and I sat down with people. And I said, tell me about this. Tell me about what happened. Then. And I have compiled my sources. I have made sure so that in writing to this man named Theophilus, which means the lover of God, he says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Not an approximation, not, well, this is, you know, it's just the best I can do, and I realize that, uh, you know, this is going to leave you with, uh, with some misunderstandings, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just all we can do. That's, that's not what he says. Instead, he says, I've talked to eyewitnesses, I've compiled my sources, I've compared their statements, and I have laid these things out for you in such a way that you can know the exact truth of the gospel presentation that has been made to you. Now, some would say, well, it doesn't sound very spiritual doing study like that. Why can't the Spirit of God use that brilliant mind of Luke to give us this exact accounting that gives us so much of the information of Jesus' teaching and his encounters with with, with even religious leaders and political leaders. Why can't God use that brilliant mind that he gave to Luke to give us this kind of information? You see, the biblical testimony is clear. God is sovereign. God has revealed his word, and he has used men speaking from him as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit so that the result that we have is theanustos. It is God-breathed and it communicates to us exactly what our Heavenly Father knew that we would need to have to live a life of godliness before Him. 
Thank you very much.